KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's the treatment, as I said to my guest, Ronaldo Marcus Green. We're just going to keep doing this until one day we're actually in the room. But in the meantime, we will be happily talking to him here about his new film, Bob Marley, One Love. It's a new take, a new biofilm for him. And it's good to talk to you again. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing, Elvis? I'm well. And, you know, this is a, almost the bookend to King Richard because this is a, a film about absent fathers, isn't it? It is. It is. And... Something I learned about Bob was that he was homeless, that he didn't have a father. And I, I don't know if it was uh, something I knew before I took on this project. When you think about those, so many of those songs are about a yearning for family, be it a literal or a figurative family. And that's what you kind of make this movie about, isn't it? Yeah, that spiritual journey. Um, I knew I wanted to make something that was a bit more lyrical, a, little, a bit more poetic. And, and you know, it was known that Bob had visions and, you know, he had seen the shooting before it happened. And I needed a visual representation for that journey. What was that going to be for Bob and that spirituality, which goes in all his music? Obviously, Rastafarianism plays a big part of that. But, you know, he had these visions and and I wanted to show that in in this film. And we should say the film takes place in a very concentrated period of time, doesn't it? Yeah, so we start the film in 1976, which uh, felt like the right period of time for us uh, to capture because in 76, Jamaica was, you know, in political turmoil um, and Bob was at the center of it. You know, you had these two warring factions between the JLP, Jamaican Labor Party, and the PNP, People's National Party. And they were all vying for Bob's attention and support. And because he was uh, not a political figure, you know, he spoke with his music, but he he was the voice of the people in a lot of ways. And so I think they that both sides knew that and wanted to wanted to get Bob to support. And so I think just seeing Bob as a national hero, seeing him as somebody that, you know, was obviously big in Jamaica and what happens, there's an assassination attempt on his life. And, you know, at that moment, that changed his life forever. It changed the course of his life forever. It changed the course of our lives forever, because what came out of that was was Exodus, Kaya as well. But it was really that journey to discovering and, and putting Bob on the global map. Um, so his time in the Bahamas and then and then going to London, where he creates and performs Exodus on the Exodus tour in 76, that was such a period of time of rich musical creation, rich musical genius, and just an outpouring of of all that was happening. And obviously politically at the time in Jamaica and around the world, and Bob, you know, going from essentially being a, a musician to a revolutionary. I mean, his music, his message got out to every corner of the world. And, and that was a remarkable period of time. And then his return in, to Jamaica in 1978 that we, we know is the One Love Peace concert. As I was watching the film, though, Ronaldo, I was thinking about how an act of violence impacts a community and a family. And it took me back to Monsters and Men. Yeah, there, there's a lot of parallels there, for sure. And I think because Bob feels like he's there's an omnipresence, right? He's always around. I think there's people forget, even people that knew that he got shot, they forget about it. 
And it still surprises you when you see it in the film because it's like there's no way you can you can get Bob, right? And I think I think that that moment changed the course of history. Bob became the musician and the revolutionary to the rest of the world that he already was, but it really, really was a significant moment in history. And I think hopefully our film kind of shines light as to what was happening to the man, the humanity behind him as a as a father, as a husband, not just a musician, but uh, but certainly, you know, it was it was a very impactful moment in, in time. But it's also for you this moment of trauma when gun violence is visited on the black community. You know, I mean, that that kind of threat that in some ways exists in all of your movies, that threat of violence on the, on the black community, be it here or someplace else. And that's there's somebody I know who's interested in documentary, and there's so much Marley documentary, as I'm sure you know, that, that this has been so, I think, key to the way you think about this continual impact and this trauma that that kind of violence has on a community that's often defenseless. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And with this particular, I think what's so beautiful about Bob's journey is that, yeah, he was angry. And I'm sure he was really pissed and really upset and I'm sure scared. And there's a moment of his anger that erupts in the film that's really profoundly unsettling. Yeah, because you don't you don't expect Bob Marley, the guy who you see on the buttons and the bags and the T-shirts to to be harboring that kind of feeling. You know, he's perfect. There's this idea of perfection. There's this idea that he's given, you know, he's a prophet. And and the reality is he was a human being that walked the planet like you and I. And he made mistakes and he was uh, complicated. And, you know, look, can we get into all the complexities? No, but we, we certainly try to show that he was a human being. And he had feelings just like you and I. But what he did do, and I think this is for sure to be true, is he gave, he carried that burden and gave us a gift of his music. And however he was able to channel that message of the common man, the common woman, he was just able to do it in a way that other people can't. He was able to take something so hard, growing up poor, homeless, absentee father, streets of trench town, like he's not supposed to make it. The world says a kid like that isn't supposed to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest musician of all time. That's not supposed to happen. And he was determined through work ethic, perseverance, all of the things that we like want to teach our children and pass on. He had it. It wasn't just natural gifts. He had gifts, but he worked at those gifts. And I, it's just an, it's a remarkable story in and of itself. Just the unlikely hero that Bob is and was and and how he was able to, you know, transcend that. And, you know, his music transcends the, the time. It's the treatment. We're talking about fighting the odds with our guest, Ronaldo Marcus Green, whose new film as director and writer is Bob Marley, One Love. You can also do the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. But I, I just want to get back to that, Ronaldo, just because this is this, this specter of threat is, is exists in all of your movies. I mean, that... Life goes on in, in one love after that, but in a lot of ways, doesn't. I mean, there's been this change, but you, you start the film off with the specter of violence and 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 fires in the in the fields, and also as kind of a counterpoint to that, that humming, that almost constant mm. thrum, that kind of musical almost pitch pipe that's going off in Marley's head. 
that idea kind of came from, you know, what's the through line in the movie and was thinking that Bob was this child. Oftentimes kids blame themselves for the situations they find themselves in. You know, if, if your parent left you, it's your fault. You know, they, they oftentimes take that on. They take on that responsibility that they can't be loved. And I felt that Bob did that. I felt like Bob certainly harbored a lot of that feeling that he, you know, he's running from something, which we, you know, depict in the visions in our film, that he's sort of running from this, this force and, um, and that there's this spirituality in our, in our film and in Bob's music that felt like that's the thing. That's the thing that always brought him back, whether it was his conversations with Rita, but Rastafarianism, that was the thing that centered Bob. It was the thing that brought him back and allowed him to sort of forgive himself to, you know, quoting Bob, you know, emancipate himself from mental slavery. So, you know, Redemption Song became a, a bit of a through line for this film, for Bob's journey, for Bob's spiritual journey in the film. But yeah, going back to Monsters and Men, it's always about that moral ambiguity. What are you going to do when your back's against the wall? What are you going to do when you get shot? Are you going to give up? Like, what's what are the choices we have as human beings? And Bob makes a choice. He makes a deliberate choice to say, by divine intervention, I was saved somehow. I was saved by divine intervention. So I'm going to use that divine intervention to pour into my music to give to the masses. And that's what he does in Exodus. And it's quite remarkable to see that journey unfold in our film. It's interesting that you choose this period just because the entirety of his life in Jamaica was rife with political turmoil. Those years leading up to Exodus were also about to a country kind of living in not far from the kind of revolutionary tactics and, and thoughts that were happening in America taking on a very different life in that place that still was under British colonialism. Yeah, for sure. And I think Bob, I think Bob was lost, you know, after that period, there was a period of time where he went to the Bahamas and, and there was an incubation period before he had gone to, to London and our film, we just kind of leap forward a bit, but yeah, there was a period of time where he was searching. He was searching for the answers to what happened in Jamaica, all of the synergies that were happening politically, like why, why him? Why his family? Why was he a target? Somebody that never chose sides. And then just to have those geopolitical connections, you know, from the clash and what was happening in punk rock at that time and all the influences in, in London. And to find yourself as a Rastafari, in, a stranger in a foreign land, so to speak, I think he found it. He found it through that work, at the, through those connections. He was able to channel that experience into, into some of the greatest music ever made. It's also very interesting, too, because it's very much about the impact that reggae had on the UK as well as the impact that the UK had on Jamaica. But that impact and and you have that those moments in the film, you just mentioned that talking about the 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 explosion, the real explosion of Marley is taking about the same time, the same place that punk does. And it wasn't being covered in that same way in the United States. You would have thought that punk was a much bigger deal than reggae was. Where in fact, you do stuff like you listen to the way Eric Clapton started playing after he listened to Marley, and he would do that thing that Marley did, where he would let go of the fretboard after he hit a note. So you get that sustain. I mean, there's this deep-seated impact that Jamaican culture had on British culture that you're really trying to get at in this movie, aren't you? For sure. And I think, look, you know, there were so many amazing Jamaican artists that just hadn't hadn't gotten to the level that Bob, you know, 
gets to, you know, he, he brought reggae to a different, to a different subset of people um, and to every corner of the world, you know, Bob Marley got out there in a way, which is amazing because then it, it allows you to find out about all the other great reggae musicians that came before him. And you learn about Peter Tosh and you learn, you learn about all the other folks that were around making great music at that time. Bob's music really, really was, was different. And I think, you know, there were two sides to that album, right? So you get the A side, you get the B side, you get the love songs, you get the revolutionary. And I think it's the package. It was the package in which he was able to communicate. And I don't think people know that they're singing religious songs, but they are. It's the, the Bible. He's singing words from the Bible and people are jamming to it. It's, uh, it's incredible. So often when reggae is talked about, people think about that sort of blissful, amused look that Marley so often had in photographs, because the music is just so danceable that itself becomes a kind of subversion. I mean, to lay down those kind of music tracks, and he was dancing as you have your star uh, doing so often, possessed by that music, and that music did so much. And the more you listen to it, the more the words kind of seep in. You can almost listen to it and just almost hum along as he's doing at the beginning of the of the movie, that humming. This seems to me to be, you're picking at all those elements of subversion that were part of not only the way he operated, but the Whalers as well, the way Junior Marvin operated, that this sort of way of saying, this feels like it's candy, but it's really not. Yeah, and that's ex that's the that's the magic trick, you know, in, in Bob's music. That's what makes him the legend that he is. It's not something that you you think about. Nobody wants to be depressed. Nobody wants to be sad. Nobody wants to, you know, and he, he turned it on its head and he made it something that you can dance to, that you can groove to, that you can love. And that's just, that's just magic. I mean, that that is that subversion. And I think in the way that we try to depict it in the film is to show you how and why he was making that music. Where was that struggle coming from? What was he singing for? And to slow it down a little bit, you know, I, I, I felt like I had heard Bob's music dozens and dozens of times before and then feel like I never, I never really understood it. And it wasn't until the making of this movie that I had to really dissect those lyrics and understand what the man was singing about. It's The Treatment. More to come with our guest, director, writer, Ronaldo Marcus Green. His new film is writer-director is Bob Marley, One Love. We'll be back. We'll see with more of The Treatment after this. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's the treatment. My incredibly patient guest is writer-director Rinaldo Marcus Green. His new film as writer-director is Bob Marley, One Love. You can also hear this show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. Let me ask you this, too, about the casting process, because you need to have somebody who can do that kind of what seems like serenity, but in fact this kind of constant anxiety about something, and then have those two qualities sort of manifest simultaneously. Because people have been talking about the way he gets at the outer part of it. There's an inner life in there too, where we can see all these questions, like when Rita turns up after the shooting, and you can see that question in his eyes. Talk about finding somebody in Kingsley, Benadir, who can do that for you. Finding Bob was uh, finding a needle in the haystack, and I looked at several hundreds of tapes and nothing came close. And we're talking good actors, really, really good actors, just off the mark, just because it's Bob and uh, it's a really high bar. Kingsley's tape came in, I want to say in the 11th month 
and and in the eleventh hour, feeling like you know the rights were about to let up, and and here comes this tape, and I see this, I see this guy, and I'm like, who is he? And I had forgotten I had seen him in One Night in Miami, but he had he had the it factor, man. He just had the he had the twinkle in the eye. He had that thing that you look for as a director that you're like, man, there's something here. Even the way he he filmed himself in the audition tape, you know, he didn't give me three sides. He gave me one side, three quarter. You know, he was really intelligent. There was something very, very thoughtful about his performance. There was something calm. There was something confident. And there was a vulnerability. That's what you need. And so I thought the baseline was there. Now, Kingsley's 6'2", probably 225. He's a big guy. And so, but I'm looking and I'm saying, okay, if he, if he can lose the weight, if, uh, you know, I, I put a wig on him and some prosthetics, I think, I think we can get there. He had enough of the attributes that resembled Bob that I thought, okay, we can, we can help support his performance through some movie magic. Now, I didn't know he couldn't sing and dance or any of that stuff. It was the least of my concern because I was truly looking for an actor in the same way that in the Williams family, I was looking for actors. I was never going to find the tennis players to be stars at that point. And I thought through movie magic, we'd be able to create the rest. And and look, luckily for us, Kingsley's a bit of a savant. So in seven months, taught himself how to play guitar, you know, singing, choreography, uh, you know, on, on top of learning an, an entirely new language in, in Patois. He's clearly a, a devoted and capable uh, human being who who can do a lot of great stuff. But he was deeply committed to the craft, man. And uh, we went on this long journey together and, and we found something that we felt uh, brought out the best essence of Bob. But there's also an element of hurt that we can hear in some of the singing, too this plaintive quality that we can see, again, that's what I was getting at, that you can see in the eyes. It's not just the twinkle, because I'm sure lots of people can give you that, but that's just two dimensions. That's just the playful part of it. That's the stuff we see in the still photographs of him. Well, there's something in him that was holding back at all times, which is weird, given how much he seemed to surrender to moments. And Kingsley seems to have that quality, too. Yeah, for sure. I think that was something that we often talked about in the script and in the rewriting process was just Bob's public persona versus his private one. And obviously there's lots of videos of Bob and you see him in interviews, but like, who's the guy when the interview shuts off? And that's who we were curious to find out through conversations with the family, through conversations of close friends of the court, through a lot of the literature that's been written about him. Like, who was that guy? And I know that Kingsley was relentless in listening to audio tapes and audio files of Bob before and after our timeline to sort of capture this like picture of who Bob was. This guy who carried this heavy burden, who of course, of course, was diplomatic and and calm and cool and collected, but like definitely carried a heavy burden. White absentee father, homeless, poor. There weren't things that are obvious when you look at Bob. And I think, you know, that was part of the work that we tried to tackle together was trying to find out who that man was, because it brought us closer to the humanity, to the lyrics, to why he was singing about it. It's not just anybody singing. You know, it's rebel music, it's soul music. And he was singing from a place of deep, deep pain to bring us so much joy. And that's who we were curious in, uh, in capturing. Here's the impact that Bob Marley had on me. I have one of his hats that I bought at an auction. Uh, I'm talking to the writer-director of the film, Bob Marley, One Love, 
Ronaldo Marcus Green. You can also show at KCOW.com slash the treatment because it's such a compact period and there's this constant visitation of, of literal and figurative fire in his life. And, and you also were swimming upstream too, if I can mix metaphors here, because people have been trying to do a Bob Marley movie for over 30 years. And that's, you could build a house of all the scripts that probably have been done on his life. What was it that you think you brought to it that got the Marley family to say, okay, this is the guy? Because I'm not going to let you off the hook here, Ronaldo. Everybody has tried to make this movie as well, you know. Man, Elvis, I think, uh, I think the universe was on my side, man. I think the family was ready. It was their time. They were ready to be producers. They were ready to take the time off to get it right. They saw King Richard. They saw my early work. They saw that I was not interested in making something cookie cutter, that I was going to try to at least honor the the legacy of their father. Um, I love Bob Marley, which is why I was hesitant to take it on because it's Bob and you don't want to get it wrong and you don't want to mess it up. But it's also like a great reason to go after it because Bob's music and message is so important. You know, my name is Ronaldo Marcus Green. My dad named me after Marcus Garvey. That's not an accident. It was sort of written in some weird way that he had this revolutionary spirit. So I, I think it was just the right time. It was the right combination of these. This is the kind of movie that I wanted to make. You know, the first conversation I had about the script was like, look, we got to start over. And it wasn't that there weren't great things in the script. It was just too much life. It was too much life to pack into a two-hour movie. And I had to say, okay, well, what is the core of this? And it took that year to, to figure out that Rita's involvement in Bob's life was going to be a significant part of this movie, that her story needed to be told, that Rita's the one that introduced him to Rastafarianism, which is arguably the single most important thing in Bob's music. You know, it's not just a cool hairstyle. You know, it's a way of life. Bob devoted his life to being a Rastafarian. What does that mean? And so our our movie had anchors, and we, we were able to find those anchors together and build that together. And then, of course, with my cast, I mean, my cast, my crew, you know, Lashana Lynch, who's incredible as Rita Marley, you know, having Jamaican roots and feeling like how important it was to make sure that we were going to have a three-dimensional character that was going to be able to have a voice. And and those things, I think, in tandem were just on my side. But yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I actually saw the morgue of scripts, so to speak. Literally saw like all these scripts that were not made. I opened up a file cabinet and it was like, it was like one of those, you know, like police file cabinets. It was all, <laughs> all, all manuscripts. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know if ours is going to live, but... I just remember like my heart dropping a little bit and just sinking and saying, oh my God, I've been into this a year and all those scripts went to die. And I had heard Scorsese's name and I had heard Oliver Stone's name. And I'm like, oh man, I don't know. I don't know. But kept the faith, man. We kept the faith. And uh, and here we are. It seems to me incumbent on this project. It, it, it kind of asks for a filmmaker of color who has certain sensitivities and understandings of this. And I think, and we talked about this when you were last here, your films have all been de facto political films. They may not be political with a capital P, but there's a politics of black struggle, even in, in Joe Bell, the politics of sort of being dispossessed that run through all of your movies. 
Yeah, I think that's, I think it's the perspective. It's who I am as a person. Your films are an extension of you. And by virtue of growing up with a Puerto Rican mother and a African-American father and a revolutionary middle name, I wore the number 42 throughout my whole life. It was just, <laughs> my up, it was part of my upbringing. Like I, w- I wasn't given a choice. My parents were like, that's who you're going to be. We're a Caribbean people. We're, we're from the motherland. Like that is who I am. And so my perspective is in part how I make films. And I think by virtue of that, of course, you know, it's, it's how you lend something, you know, oftentimes, you know, I'll talk at a film school and they'll say, well, where do you know where to put the camera? I said, well, you put the camera where you would sit and watch the scene. And that's different for everybody. And it's how you view, it's how you view the world. And I think that's what gives a unique perspective. Fortunately for me, the Marleys had seen my early work. They saw my short films. Ziggy Marley mentioned Stone Cars. He wasn't talking about King Richard and Oscars. He was talking about a short film I made with no money and no lights, because that was the film that impacted him and thought, you're the right guy to make my father's story. And once I had the family's blessing, once I had Ziggy Marley saying, I want you to be the guy to tell my father's story, that'd give you some confidence, man. That'll say, wow, like, okay, maybe I am doing something right. Maybe I am the right guy. And yeah, if I can make every movie with that level of confidence and, and, and support as me as, as me as the quarterback of the film, the quarterback of the team, then, then yeah, I think you can go places. Well, gosh, this is the thing we talked about when you were last here, which is the way you shoot homes, the way you shoot places that belong to people. Those early scenes where Bob is going to visit Rita, and that's not his home, and it's a place he wants to be. I, I think about what domesticity means in your movies, about being maybe kind of a place of, of respite, of getting away from the world. Maybe it's all these characters have, and but they can't escape the outside world as much as they might want to. And that's certainly something that's here, but it's also something that's been in your work as well. And I wonder if you think that that's something they responded to too, that, you know, even when he went home, he couldn't get away from all of that. For sure. I mean, 56 Hope Road was, you see, he walks across the courtyard and he doesn't have a moment of, of rest. Everybody wants something from him. And he played that role. He played that role. He gave. He gave the shirt off his back. As this is, and this is not just my love of Bob Marley. This is other people's stories and accounts of him. The money he gave, when he made, it was all for the community. But he really had a moment of like respite. The guy was always around people all the time. And I don't know if that was planned or by default or just who he was and the responsibility that he felt. But I'm sure in those moments of of silence, in those moments in the room where he could crawl up like a baby, so to speak, you know, that comfort of being in in your own silence, in your own thoughts, what it must have felt like to be Bob, what it must have felt like to be in his own thoughts and and be creating music in those places. You know, everybody I met said Bob would take a regular conversation like you and I are having right now and turn it into a song. And that's just was his unique ability to take the common man and woman's voice. He was the voice of the people for a reason. He was able to say, hail George. George is a real guy. He's a guy. It's like, oh, not just made up. George is real. He's really making porridge. Um, it's kind of amazing. And he just was able to like take his journals and make them uh, make them incredible songs. 
Well, it's a treatment. My guest who has a much more evocative and revolutionary middle name than I have a first name is Reynaldo Marcus Green. <laughs> His new film as writer-director is the thoughtful take on Bob Marley's life, Bob Marley, One Love. I can't thank you enough for doing this, Reynaldo. Always good to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you, Elvis. One Named after a revolutionary, writer-director Reynaldo Marcus Green has made a new film about another rebel. Bob Marley, One Love is in theaters now. Flames kept alight and flags still flying. These stories and more at the archive, kcrw.com slash the treatment. Keeping an eye and an ear out for insurrection, I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. More to come. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. In his first film as writer-director, my guest, Cord Jefferson, has managed to get nominations in a few categories, which is no small thing, including Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay, an adaptation of the book Erasure by Personal Effort. Uh, Cord, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You've now had a chance to live with a response to the movie, and I wonder if this takes you back to what it was your first day directing on the set, what that felt like to you? Uh, it was terrifying. I almost passed out, if I'm being honest. L- literally, I-, I had to excuse myself to go to the restroom on our first day on set because I started seeing spots and I knew that the director passing out in front of everybody would not um, inspire a lot of confidence in the days ahead. And so <laughs> so, so, I, so I, uh, I rushed to the bathroom and, and gathered myself a little bit and came back out and fortunately didn't go over. But we made this movie under very little auspices, made it with very little money. Uh, we shot the entire thing in 26 days. This is, the, in many ways, the little movie that could. Uh, we, we look at it as a, a little movie with big ideas that sort of is punching above its weight and... and but but if you would have told me that we would be here with five Oscar nominations the first day we started shooting, I I absolutely uh, would not have believed you. And how long did it take you to get to that point? Because certainly a number of people tried to get Erasure to the screen. I have no reference point for this, but everybody tells me it's the fastest they've ever seen a movie come together. I found Erasure and read it for the first time in December of 2020, and the movie was in theaters by December of 2023. So from the inception of the idea to the movie being out was three years, basically. 
But I wonder, too, just in terms of the tone of what it is you wanted to do with it, uh, if it took that long, because it's interesting that having come over the course of so much real social turmoil of the past 10 years, because it is a movie with a, an angry Black character who is, although the movie is a satire, you're not satirizing him. One of the questions the film asks, I think, is is why is it that people like to make this kind of story over and over again? And what I mean by this kind of story is slavery and, um, you know, Klan, burning crosses, civil rights era, and police sh- shooting an unarmed black person. Part of the reason why those movies keep getting made is because this is the same re- reason a lot of movies get remade, right? It's the same reason buddy cop movies keep getting made and heist movies keep getting made. It's because... Hollywood is risk averse and Hollywood likes a sure thing. And so um, if they have a formula that has worked in the past, they're going to keep going back to that formula. And so slavery movies like buddy cop movies have been successful in the past. And so there's a sort of there's a reason to go back to the well with those. That being said, I think one of the reasons also why those movies are attractive, I think that what they allow, they allow some distance between a white viewer and what they're seeing on screen. It sort of like says like, well, that's what racism looks like. Racism looks like owning slaves, and I don't own slaves. Or racism looks like burning a cross on somebody's lawn. I would never do that. Racism looks like a police officer killing an unarmed black teenager. I would never do that. It allows it allows a real sort of like distance. It's sort of like as if you're not watching your own life on screen. You're watching You're watching strangers. And I think that what this movie does, what American fiction does is... I think that it sort of suggests that maybe prejudice is is closer to home than than you might think, and I think that 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 people don't like being uncomfortable. People especially don't like being uncomfortable around issues of race. But I think that for me, whenever I feel uncomfortable in art, I always try to lean forward because I think that there's probably growth on the other side of that discomfort. I had a woman in New York who came out of a screening, a white woman probably in her forties or fifties, and and she came to me and said, you know. She said, that was difficult for me to watch. This movie was hard for me to watch. She said, I felt myself cringing and sort of really uncomfortable at, at, at some of the times because I was seeing myself. But she said, I'm, I'm really happy that I, that I finished watching it because I feel like I learned something. And, and this, this is a conversation that I think it's important to have. So I think that there is probably more discomfort in this film for certain audience members than there is for like another quote-unquote, black movie about slavery or some sort of black misery. I guess what I'm getting at, too, is also when this kind of movie happens and the the movie about selling out as a person of color, we can go back to Putney Swope or Drop Squad or any movie from decades past, it tends to make fun of the people, the black people on screen. It tends to satirize them. And what I'm trying to get at here is that you don't do that. And I wondered if you felt that that was something you had to be honest about rather than offering audiences an easy way out, making the characters on screen, particularly Monkey character played by Jeffrey Wright, who's also nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actor, by not making him an, art, an object of satire, by making him a, trying to make him as real as possible. Yeah, that was very important to me is that is all of these people, you know, from Jeffrey Monk, the the lead down to, you know, a character like Lorraine, who plays the live in housekeeper and and her eventual sort of uh, beau um, Maynard, who plays, you know, this this security guard that, that the family has known for a while now. So the juxtaposition that the book did that the movie then does is that it does this interesting thing where. Monk, the lead, is is frustrated because 
he believes that culture is flattening black life and reducing black life to just pure stereotypes. And at the same time, what is happening in that novel and in the film is it, it's allowing you to see a complex black life. So it's sort of like it's the problem and the solution in the same in the same story. And so to me, in order to capture what the book was doing, I felt like it was really important to explore black life in all of its facets and complexity and nuance and obviously not all of it because sort of the even even in this movie there's not the totality of the black experience right that you can't do that in a movie and so it was important to me though to show a breadth of humanity and and show and have these characters feel lived in and have these characters feel like real people it's the treatment which you can also hear at kcow.com my guest who did not ask jeffrey wright to play felix Leiter, is Cord Jefferson, his first film as writer-director is American Fiction. You're still dealing with something that ridicules the, the commodification of experience, which is a hard thing to do, you know, that, that, that you can put a slipcover over it and, and, and say it's this and sell it. And you're still making fun of that, aren't you? I actually have a hard time these days talking about race in a way that doesn't make fun of it, in a way that doesn't make jokes about it. I think that Race to me is inherently absurd in that it is both real and not real. It is not real in that the vast majority of scientists and science tells us that there is no such thing as race. It is it is a man-made concept that the sort of biological differences in our sort of nose width and our hair texture are actually meaningless when it comes to our humanity. And so uh, we should ignore all of that. And yet at the same time, we've structured our societies and our nations and our institutions in a way that suggests the race is real. And so race is not real, and yet racism is real. And so that that inherent tension, that ridiculousness, that it's silly. And I think that it's important to make fun of these things. I think that it, it's, in fact, it saps them of their power in a way. And so, yeah, I think that it's really important to to mock this kind of thing. I guess this is the point where I have to ask you to do the thing that you've probably done a couple of times, uh, which is to let people know what the movie's about. At its core, the movie is about a black novelist named Monk who specializes kind of in contemporary retellings of classical Greek mythology and classical Greek theater. And his books are not very well, um, they, they don't sell very well, and, 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 uh, but he keeps publishing them because he likes what he writes. But, you know, there's not a huge market for Monk's literature. And so he's trying to sell his latest manuscript. It's, it's going nowhere. And his agent tells him that the problem is, is that people want a black book. They want him to write about, you know, gritty black American stories. So inner city poverty, um, you know, slavery, gun violence, drug dealing. Then um, he says, well, you know, that's I think my story is universal. I don't want to write that kind of thing. And, you know, everybody says, suit yourself. And so in this fit of rage one night, he decides to write this kind of book that he thinks that the publishers are asking for. He fills it full of stereotypes and tropes and he considers it performance art. And so he's going to sort of write this under a pseudonym and send it out and rub everybody's noses in the in the garbage that they solicit from black authors. And he sends it in and of course it becomes a, a massive bestseller. It's uh, by far his biggest success as an author. He doesn't want to sell this book. He resents that this book is becoming popular, but there's a lot of issues going on in his personal life that require him to earn a lot of money very quickly. It's also such an overwhelming task to take on just because that book means so much. And I, when we talked before, I told you about reading it, 
in uh, the time right after 9-11 and what a touchstone it become to me just because there was so much clarity about trying to figure out who you are and what your contribution to the world is going to be at a time when the world is changing. And and that's what this the film is kind of about too, isn't it? Probably the main, one of the main themes in the film to me is freedom and everybody's desire to be free and to be the person they want to be and the strange things that people will do when they feel like you haven't given them permission to be who they want to be and they feel like they don't have the freedom to live the life they want to live and the the the, the crazy things that that human beings will do in that circumstance and so I don't know if we're in as a time of as great a upheaval as we were in, in post 9-11 when the book was published, but I certainly think that those kinds of conversations it was having back then, we are having some of them today. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be fascinating to see that in so many ways, the world really hasn't changed that much since the publication of the book. People have asked, like, what do you need to, what did you do to need to, up, to update it? And so really the the thing that I found myself doing was that in the book, I think that for instance, the uh, movie producer in the novel, uh, the, the person who comes and wants to adapt Monk's book, My Pathology, into a film, he, he's much more predatory in the novel. He's there with sort of like, uh, you know, a trophy wife, and he's, and he's just kind of openly sleazy, and, and he's really just sort of like sees dollar signs when he looks at, when he looks at Monk. And, you know, I, I felt like the only thing we really needed to do to update that character was to make this a person who's who is the character in the film, right? It's like a guy who says his heart is in nowhere but the right place. He's like, I am here because I want to tell black stories. I want to help bring in underrepresented voices from the margins. I want to support the black community by letting black people tell their stories. It's just that, you know, this is a guy who believes that black stories are always traumatic, are always violent, are always about poverty, are always about the inner city. And so to me, the, it was just a, a kind of a softening. And it was sort of like we are in the world of, of nice white liberals, of people who say like, you know, this is, I'm doing the right thing. It's time to listen to black voices. And it's suggesting that, you know, sometimes those people whose hearts are in the right place may very well have some prejudice. So it was still still hold some racial prejudice that maybe they have a blind spot that they that they are not aware of. I guess, Gord, you're kind of in an interesting position now too, because this movie is achieving its success at a time that it feels like the pendulum has started to swing the other way. That with the sort of ending of these roles of diversity and equity inclusion executives and nonprofits and studios and turning away from what was an interest in, in material about people of color, your film can be, has become kind of this exemplar of what movies about a touchy subject with Black characters can be, both as popular success and, and getting the kind of accolades that make them enduring. A big spiritual predecessor of this movie to me was a film called Hollywood Shuffle. And Hollywood Shuffle, the more that I learned about it was as I got more and more interested in, in making films, you know, that, that was a movie that Robert Townsend maxed out like 12 or 13 credit cards to make. We had him on the show last year for the 35th anniversary of the movie. Oh, really? Oh, God, he's yeah. amazing. The more that I read about it, you know, he maxed out his credit cards. He shot it over. 
he shot it over the course of a, like a year and a half because he, they had to rent the camera equipment for a weekend and then return it and then rent it again. And so I very much look at that movie as I'm standing on Robert Townsend's shoulders in order to make American fiction. And I'm aware of that. And I also am aware that, that you know, I didn't max out any credit cards to make this movie. I walked into an office of people and, and they, they wrote me a check for millions of dollars to, to make this film. And so obviously critical success is wonderful. Awards are wonderful. Um, commercial success is wonderful. But to me, a, a, an even more important step that this film could, could maybe take is serving as a, a reminder to these risk-averse executives that trying something new works out sometimes. And maybe it's sort of, maybe it's worthwhile to take a look at artists that you might not otherwise look toward to, to sort of buy stuff from. This, this movie, 98% of the distributors that we took this movie to passed on it and said that they weren't interested and said, that, well, that's not true. They said that the, the resounding sort of response was, I wish I worked at a place where we could make this movie. I just don't. I love, I love the script. I love Jeffrey, but we just can't get it made here. And, and meanwhile, these people are making $150 million movies regularly, several times a year. If we can crack the window a little bit and let somebody coming behind me come through the door the way that Robert Townsend helped me come through the door, that to me is sort of the, would be the, the ultimate triumph. Well, it's, it's, this conversation starts and ends with circularity since Hollywood Shuffle is now being released by MGM. Uh, they now own the film. So all things sort of come back to the lion. My guest is Cord Jefferson, yeah. whose film <laughs> is the Oscar-nominated film. First film for him is, of course, American Fiction. Cord, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. It's a real honor. His first film has garnered Oscar nods for Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. He's Cord Jefferson, and his film is American Fiction. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment. Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. With the treat, the star of the upcoming Netflix series Avatar The Last Airbender, actor Daniel Day Kim, on a 1961 musical that was proof positive about something that he always believed. Hi everyone, I'm Daniel Day Kim and this is The Treat. I think the thing that I would love to talk about that has had an impact on my life is the Rodgers and Hammerstein movie, Flower Drum Song. And the reason it had such an impact on my life was because when I started acting, it was in the early 90s, and I had grown up to think that there were no Asian leading men or leading women. And I saw this movie, one night on VHS. That like, gives you an idea of when it was. <laughs> and I remember my jaw was literally hanging open because here I saw a completely Asian-American cast without accents, 
being every spectrum of humanity, of life, in, of San Francisco, you know, in the 50s and 60s. My brother's ship's coming in. You know how he feels about me and boys. I couldn't tell him I've been going steady unless I told him it was serious. Well, I have been pretty serious so far, haven't I? <laughs> Not serious enough. I thought to myself, I'd been taught all along that we didn't exist, but we did. And not only did we exist, but I'm seeing people like James Shigeta and Nancy Kwan doing glorious things on screen. When people said, oh, Asian people can't be this or can't be that, here was the evidence, here was the receipt that we could be. And that movie was shot in the 60s. And by, you know, a, a pair of composers who were traditionally known for doing very Americana-type stories. And they were singing and dancing all well. And I thought to myself, we can do this. We have the proof. We have the history. There's no reason why we can't. And it reinforced in me this idea that there were institutionalized reasons why we were not given the opportunity. You are not a feudal lord. This is not China. For five years you have gone to that citizenship school and all you have learned is this is not China. What did he look like? Who? The robber. Don't ask me what he looked like. All white men look alike. How many times have I I also remember when I was starting out as an actor, I kept hearing, oh, well, Asian people can't be funny. And now you look today at people like Ali Wong and Ronnie Chang and Ken Jeong and, and, you know, Jimmy O. Yang. The list goes on. Joe Coy. Like, the list goes on of Asian-American comedians. But we've always been there. We've never not been able to do these things. We've just never been able to have the opportunity. I'm a girl, and by me, that's only great. I am proud that my silhouette is curvy, that I walk with a sweet and girlish gait, with my hips kind of... The, the sense of community is so apparent in every frame. And the fact that they are unapologetically Asian in this movie is something that, that we strive for today, you know, and to be unapologetic about who you are in general. And the fact that they were doing this back then, it just shows you, again, that it's, it's not a matter of if. When I have a brand new hairdo With my eyelashes all in curl I float as the clouds on air do I enjoy being a girl Actor Daniel Day Kim's treat is the film Flower Drums On. It's a rare instance of a treat you can see at a theater now or soon. Flower Drum Song will be playing February 19th and 20th as part of the Technical IB series at the Vista Theater in Hollywood. Treats near and far, such as actor Adam Scott's ruination on another film about identity, can be found at kcrw.com slash the treat. Moments of inspiration that serve to sharpen the focus of creators in fields from music to film, style to literature. It's the treat. And it's the treatment, produced and edited by Rebecca Mooney and mixed by Katie Gilchrist. It's help from Laura Kondarajan and Phil Richards. To better days, everyone. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment.
KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.